Our text this morning is probably the most quoted and best known of all Bible verses. Without looking at the screen, do you know what verse that would be? Could, could it be the 23rd Psalm? Everybody knows the 23rd. Well, most people know the 23rd Psalm. But I think our verse this morning is more popular than, than the 23rd Psalm. Could it be the Lord's Prayer? No, it's not the Lord's Prayer. Unfortunately, the Lord's Prayer is by and large forgotten these days. Very few people could identify what the Lord's Prayer is. Now, our text this morning is a text you see at football games and baseball games. It's a text some people put on their front lawn, or at least a reference. It's John 3.16. It's a verse that many of you can quote. It reads this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. Now, if you look at your copy of the scriptures, in John chapter 3, verses 16, maybe down to verse 21, It's probably, if you have the red letter edition, it's probably in red. Or at the very least, it is in quotes, labeling then this to be the direct words of Jesus Christ. But in all reality, we're not actually sure whether or not Christ said these words. In other words, this may very well be the commentary of John, the disciple, who's the author of the Gospel of John. So it may very well be that John is simply explaining what Jesus Christ was saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Keep in mind that in the original language of Greek, Koine Greek and ancient Greek, there were no red letters in the manuscripts, and neither were there quotation marks in that language. But no matter who said it, whether Christ is being quoted or if John is making a commentary, These are the inspired words of God for us. These are the words of God. These are true words, whether Christ said it to Nicodemus or John is commenting for our sake, these are the inspired words of God to us. The very beginning here, verse 16, in that text, in that passage, relates to us what I believe are the greatest truths known by mankind. There are many truths that really astound me. Scientific facts, I'm a trivia buff. I don't necessarily remember them, but I sure do love listening to them. I'm just fascinated by certain things. But no truth is more important and no truth is greater than what we see here in these verses, in particular verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but rather have eternal life. And indeed, this is a Christmas story. It's a story of the incarnation. It's about God becoming man. It's all of the details that we read of in the nativity passages, the manger, the shepherds, the wise men, all summed up into one sentence. John 3.16. Let's take a look at what the passage actually says, what the verse says. It says, God so loved. 
God so loved. The love of God is here seen in various ways. Let me point out a few of them to you. God so loved means that we see the love of God in that God did not have to act on part of man. He did not have to do what he did. But his love compelled us, compelled him to come to us. He was compelled by love, but he did not have to do what he did. His love actually excelled beyond his anger against our sin. He did not become indifferent towards you because of your sin. God is not like a child who builds a Lego and doesn't like it and tears it all apart, says, I'll start all over. No, what God does with mankind is he's determined to correct it, and so he makes whatever corrections are needed with the parts he wants to correct. He did not have to act on part of man, and yet he was compelled by love. We also see here, when we see that phrase, God so loved, we see his love in that he sacrificed a great deal in order to rescue us. God sacrificed very much in order to rescue you. If you read in the old King James Version, I think we all know it, right? He gave his only begotten son. And that word there, begotten, means one and only. His unique, there's none other like him, son. When we read that God gave his one and only son, we are saying that he has no equal. There's no equal. And yet, God sacrificed him, his son, for our salvation. His only son sacrificed for our salvation. He gave much. He gave a great deal. He gave the perfect one as a sacrifice for the broken ones. That's us. God so loved. We also see here in that little phrase, God so loved, that the love of God is seen in that he gave of his best to redeem us. He gave us his best. He gave himself. Christ is God, clothed in the flesh, the incarnation. To give yourself, I believe, is the greatest gift that you can give. That's the essence of marriage, isn't it? Imagine if marriage was simply, I give you a really big gift. Okay, we're married. No, no. Marriage is when you give yourself to that person you covenant with. And marriage collapses when you do not give fully of yourself. And so here it says, God so loved. And as you probably have guessed, that word there, love, is the Greek word agape or agapao. Okay. Agape is a, a form of love, a brand of love that is the truest form of love. You know, there's different kinds of love, as you well know. When, when I say I love my wife, and I love my dog, and I love chocolate, those are three kinds of loves, <laughs> I do not love my wife in the same degree that I love chocolate. Maybe I should rephrase that. 
I do not love chocolate to the same degree that I love my wife. I love my wife far more exceedingly and in a whole different kind of love. God gives to us of a particular love called agape. It is the truest form of love, and that love is always defined by God himself. It's a sort of love that we see here in John 3.16 that is rather discriminating. It has a discriminating affection towards others. And by discriminating, I'm not meaning discriminating in a negative sense, as we often use the word, but rather in a discerning sense, in a differentiating sense. There's a discerning aspect of God's love when we read here that God so loved the world. It's a love in which personal choice and selection is involved. God chose to love who he chose to love. It's his choice. And I'll notice here that God is not coerced to love. Nobody twists God's arm and says, you better love. No, he's God. He's not bullied or pressured to sacrifice for anyone or anything. And keep in mind that coming as a man, as a child to this world, was not his only alternative. He could have done otherwise. He could have simply done away with all of humanity. He could have simply condemned us all. But he chose not to. John 3.16 says, It is God's choice to love men, for God so loved. It's his choice. If you jump all the way towards the end of your Bible... John wrote three other books. He wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. And his first epistle, 1st John, chapter 4, verse 8, we see, I think, what I find very interesting in light of what we see in John 3.16. In John 3.16, we see that God chose to love man. But now, in 1st John, chapter 4, verse 8, we see man's choice to love others. God chose to love us, and now because God chose to love us, we can now love others. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 reads this way. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. If you've experienced this particular sort of agape love from God, this divine, saving love from God, you can... And you do choose to love others sacrificially as well. To love the unlovable becomes your experience. Why? Because God has loved us, has loved you, the unlovable. God's love compels us to love others, even those who are less than lovable. God loves to love you, and he enables you to love others. That's what it comes down to. Uh, it, it, back to 1 John chapter 4. We looked at verse 8. Look at verse 19. It reads this way. We love because God first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Understand this. Because of our sinful nature, we would have never loved God. We would have loved the benefits of God. We would have loved the blessings of God, but we would have not loved God. But because he loved us first, now we can reciprocate that love, and we can love him. And because he loved us first, we can also love others in a proper way, 
even with an agape form of love, because he loved us first. And my friends, this is the love that God has for you. He has chosen to love you. And he's chosen to love you at his expense. For God so loved. Let's place emphasis on who's loving us. God so loved. God so loved. We have to begin, in order to understand this often quoted verse, we have to begin to fathom who's doing all this loving. And so our minds really need to, need to be flooded with a sense of wonder that God, God, would love me. We have to begin to fathom the majesty and the power of his holiness. We have to begin to think and, and be inundated with, with a sense of the, the, the greatness of his righteousness and the brilliance of his purity and the stainless perfection that he possesses and then say, he loved me? This is the God whom the heavens cannot contain has chosen to love you. The God of which the earth is just a dust speck in contrast. Think about it this way. Can you imagine loving and sacrificing your life for a wee little ant that walks across your kitchen table? Can you imagine caressing that ant sacrificing for that ant, that very ant that gnaws away at the wood in your house, that very ant that carries little pieces of crumbs that fall off your table into its dark hole. Can you imagine sacrificing and loving that little ant? Can you imagine listening to every prayer of that ant? Can you imagine forgiving that ant every time it pinches you? And yet, my friends, this is the contrast between us and God. And he chose to love us. Responding to us in grace every time we wrong him. Keep in mind that God has no need of anything. It's not like he was longing for our passion and our hearts said, wow, I'm really missing something in life. What if I love them and they love me back? No, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need for us to love him. God is safe and secure, complete and satisfied in and of himself. And yet he chose to create us and he chose to love us. Not because he needs it. There's nothing that any of us here can do, either by ourselves or even together, that will increase or decrease the love that God has towards you. We cannot affect God that way. He, he is the God that is in no way soiled by any sort of imperfection, much less sin, and yet he still loves us. The love of God. Let me quote to you from B.B. Warfield. Warfield was a theologian back in the days when 
Princeton Seminary was still a biblical seminary, uh, and quite the theologian he was. He writes this in regards to John 3.16. He says, what we call infinite time in his sight is as yesterday, serene in his unapproachable glory. His will is the irresistible law of all existences, clothed in majesty and girded with strength. Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. He sits in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. It is this God, a God of whom to say, quote, he is the Lord of all the earth, is to say so little that it is to say nothing at all. Of whom the text speaks, 316. And if we are ever to catch its meaning, we have to bear this fully in mind. If we are to understand John 3.16, we have to understand the immensity of God. We have to come to grips with the bigness of God in order to truly appreciate John 3.16. Now, too often we read, for God so loved, and we think, well, of course, naturally, he's God. What else would God do? I wouldn't expect anything less from God but to love. And in all sincerity, I believe that we lose a sense of wonder that God would choose to love a broken, sinful, unlovable, comparatively insignificant, belligerent, and willing violators of his righteousness. My friends, never think, oh, of course God will love. First consider how great and big God is, how pure and holy he is. And that he would do all this at his own expense. At his own expense. My friends, this is the wondrous love of God. At his own expense. Well, now let's consider who God loves. It says, God so loved the world. Now, there's no question that God is love. And there's no question that love emanates from him because he is love. Thus, we can say that God loves all of mankind. Let me share with you two different passages, from the, uh, one from the old and one from the new. The first from the new. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. It reads this way. In regards to the love of God for everyone, Matthew 5, 45 reads this way. For he makes his son, S-U-N, his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God doesn't say, I'm going to care for you only if you're good. He sends the sun and rain on both. And look at Ezekiel in the Old Testament, 33.11. Ezekiel 33.11, he reads this way. He, God, has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but gently calls sinners to believe and turn from their sin and find life. Who does he call? Sinners. He does not say, love me, and then I'll embrace you. But no, he embraces and calls us to himself, just as we are. Keeping in mind that God is not under any compulsion to love. But he is love. So naturally, he chooses to love. But let me emphasize that. He chooses to love. And he chooses to love, in our case here, sacrificially. 
God is not just love. He's not only love, but he is love. God is also just. God is also pure, holy, righteous. But God is also love. And one does not trump the other, by the way. He has equally all these attributes. And they're all expressed in all that he does. But keep this in mind, my friends. How God expresses his love, the breadth and the width of his love, varies according to his will. The depth of God's love, how he expresses his love to you, varies according to how he wants to express himself. He chooses how much he will love, just as you do. Don't you? He chooses how much love he will express, just as you do. For example, it's Christmas time, and at the office we give gifts and thank people for helping, for being a good partner, and so on. Here's a little gift. Now, certainly you're not going to give to your office partner the same kind of gift you're going to give to your child. Certainly you're going to give to your child a more affectionate gift, a more loving gift, a better gift, a more expensive gift, a bigger gift than you are to the person you work in the cubicle next to you. You choose how much love you're going to express. And you choose who you're going to love in what way. And so does God. He decides how he will express his love. And he decides what kind of love. And he decides to whom he will express his love. God determines that. Just as we have that prerogative, so of course... God has even a greater prerogative. Here we're told that God chooses to love the world. He chooses to love the world. Now, there are various meanings to the word world in the original language. In the original language, the word world is one word, cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And in its literal form, the word cosmos means orderly arrangement, the orderly arrangement. So let's take a look at what this word cosmos can mean as we look at it. For God so loved the cosmos, for God so loved the world. Well, the word cosmos can mean universe. For God so loved the universe. But we know it doesn't mean that because Christ did not die for nature. He did not die for the planets. Christ did not die for the stars. So we look at the second possible use of the word cosmos, and that is the planet Earth, terra firma, the dirt under your feet. For God so loved the Earth. Well, we can look at that and say, well, it can't mean that sort of cosmos, that sort of of world, the earth, because Christ did not die for this physical planet. Well, the word cosmos can also mean all the people in the world. For God so loved the world, for God so loved all the people in this world that he gave his one and only son. That's where many people land, but let me ask you to consider this. The problem with the word cosmos, meaning all the people of the world, suggests that God's love is unable to effectually save who he longs to save. 
It draws a picture of God longing to save somebody, but he simply cannot do it. It suggests that man can actually frustrate God and impede God from accomplishing the salvation he sacrificed so greatly to accomplish. It suggests that we can bind God's hands and say, I'm sorry, you can't save me, even though he sacrificed so greatly. Or, in the opposite, if it means all the people of the world, it means that everyone is actually saved. Because God loved everyone. And he sent Jesus to die for everyone. And he did die for everyone. Which means everyone's sins are atoned for. Which means that everybody's saved. That's called universalism and it's a heresy. Universalism denies what the rest of the Bible says. If God loves everyone in the same way and Christ died for every person and God's love is able to accomplish what it sets out to do, then we have to conclude that salvation has been procured for every person. And yet this very viewpoint contradicts the very next verse. Look at verse 17, chapter 3 of John, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might or may or properly be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, the Bible certainly does not teach universalism that everybody's going to go to heaven because God is a nice God. It teaches quite the opposite. Verse 17. So if you look at the verse and say cosmos means everybody in the world, then either everyone is saved, that's universalism, or the atoning death of Jesus Christ is couched in his potent love, and yet it is still unable to save everyone he intends to save. That is to say that we can actually frustrate God's greatest efforts. That's a dangerous idea. The great emphasis here in this verse, John 3.16, is that this love that comes from God is an actual saving love. It's a saving love. It's not just an emotion, but rather it is a love that is determined to do what it purposes to do. It is a saving love, not merely a hope to save, or it tends to save, no, but rather a love that accomplishes what it is intended to accomplish. After all, it is God's love. Again, Warfield wrote notes, this is not a love that can be defeated in its aim by the unwillingness of its objects. It is the saving love of the Almighty God. Well, the word cosmos can also be translated this way a group of people or ethnicity. For God so loved all groups of people, all ethnic groups. And of course, the common division in the scriptures is Jew and Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Gentile encompasses everyone. So God so loved every people group. He does not distinguish between borders or DNA or skin color. 
So whether you're black or white, God saves. Whether you're Hispanic or Latino, there is a difference. God saves. <laughs> we see, look at chapter 1. Go back two chapters in the Gospel of John. And you see the various use of the word cosmos in verses 10 and 11. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It's referring to Jesus Christ. It reads this way, plus my commentary. He, Jesus Christ, was in the world, referring to the planet, cosmos, earth, or the universe. He was in the universe, and the world was made through him. And the universe, the cosmos, was made through him. Yet the world people groups, the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. So it's all there, same word, cosmos, being used in different ways. And of course, it also involves this idea of people groups, ethnicity. Aren't you glad that God doesn't distinguish between colors and, and DNA and ethnicity, you know, racism is a human, is a human fabrication. It is not of God. And there are distinctions between the people groups. There's only one race, the human race. And distinctions, cultural practices in particular, DNA, they do exist. But in God's eyes, they don't matter. The word cosmos, if you will, can also mean the elect. Cosmos, again, it means literally the orderly arrangement. By the way, that's where we get the word cosmetics from. Cosmetics is the orderly arrangement of your face. Cosmos. And it can refer here to a particular group of people, God's elect. God's love effectually saves those he predestined to salvation. Uh, in fact, if you go over to John chapter 10, I have you in chapter 3, chapter 1. Jump over now to chapter 10, but get ready. You're going to go to chapter 6 as well. Chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we read, John chapter 10, verse 14, we read, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Who does, that, who does Christ know? Who does the good shepherd know? He knows who belongs to him. And those who belong to him know him. Look at the very end there, verse 18. I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for his own who know him because he knows them. And in John chapter 6, verse 37, we read this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's great hope there. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Obvious, it's obvious here that the all-powerful, all-conquering love of God is not poured out 
with the same intent on every person in the world. John chapter 10 and John chapter 6 makes that clear. That God pours out his love in different ways, in different capacities, different kinds of love. Here we're talking about, in John 3.16, a saving love. Not just a sustaining love. Not just a, a, a love that gets you through the day and through life, but rather a soul-saving, redeeming love. And he does not offer a gift to everyone. And yet, there's still another way in which this verse, this word rather, can be understood, the word cosmos. It could also mean the world in the sense of the evil system in the world, the evil systems in the world. Um, all that is evil, all that is disagreeable, all that is reeking with immorality and disgusting the world. Last night I was talking to a man who, who said to me, he is so happy that his son has taken violin lessons and he loves it. And he lives in a very urban community and he says, this music is keeping my sons off the streets. It's keeping him out of the world, he said. Well, he's still walking the streets. He, he, he's still living on his planet. So what does this guy mean? He says, he's, this music is keeping my son out of all that is evil around him. The, world, the word cosmos could also mean that. There's nothing in the evil system of this world that is attractive to God. Whoever is of this world, we're told, is by that very fact not belonging to God. Uh, Romans 12, 21 says that the Christian is called to overcome the world. Overcome the world? In what sense? To overcome what is evil in the world. Back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, we read this. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is it that overcomes the world? The cosmos, in what sense? The evilness of this world. Who overcomes the world? The evilness of this world. Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 John, we read, do not love the world. Is it referring to ethnic groups? No. Is it referring to planet Earth? No. Is it referring to all uh, kinds of people or people in general? No. It says, do not love the world. Do not love the evil system of this cosmos. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That's John's watchword to us. And the reason for this is because of what we see in that very verse. It says, for anyone who loves the world... Love for the Father is not in him. If you love the evil system of this world, that means that the love of God is not in you. First John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world, cosmos, is under the control of the evil one. There's an evil world out there, an evil cosmos. There's nothing in this evil system, in this world, that is endearing to God or that is of God. In fact, there are three forces, 
Three forces that contend against your soul on a daily basis. Three forces. The first one is your own flesh. The second is the devil. And third is the world. Three arrows that could pierce through your soul and destroy you. Your flesh, the devil, and this world. Beware. Beware. Put on the armor of God. But there's one more way in which we can understand this word cosmos. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the cosmos. It can just refer simply to his, in general, all of his creation. For God so loved his creation in general. It's not that God loved the evil in this world, but that God loved the people, his creation, that he had mercy on people that he created. The world was perishing, and it was out of his deep love for his creation, he determined to save. And so Christ came. And in doing so, he changes what is evil and perishing and instead gives hope, makes it right, and does what is good on their behalf. Very intentionally, very purposefully, very willingly, very sacrificially, very determined, and very effectually. Man cannot frustrate what God has determined he will do. For he did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Verse 17. He was not compelled by anger, but rather compelled by love to come to you. Why are you here this morning? Because God so loved you in this world. And he offers to you the salvation he's offered so many millions before you. But let's take our eyes off of who God loved. And I want you to see instead how God loved. Instead of focusing on who, let's talk about how God so loved. And I think that's where the emphasis needs to be. The emphasis in John 3.16 is on the intensity of God's love. It says, for God so, so loved the world. My wife always complains to me because no matter what she makes, no matter how much time she spends in the kitchen, I say, it was good. <laughs> and it drives her berserk. There's no reaction, really. I, I thought, I, by the fact that I ate twice, I, that was a good response. No, she needs to hear it. So what did you think? And I still say it was good. That's not what we see here. What we see here is the intensity of God's love. He so loved the world that he is not deterred by the sinfulness of his objects. And whereas it is true that God loves all of his creation, I believe that what this verse here is stressing is not to whom he loves, but rather how he loves. Emphasis again is on God so loved the world, stressing the potency of his love. John, as he writes this, is referring here to a love that is, again, effectual. It is a love that gets the job done. 
It is a saving love. Not a potentially saving love, but a saving love. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. And by the way, he's telling us as well. Nicodemus is the one who's having the conversation with Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus, as a man, thought that he could enter the kingdom of God by doing whatever it was that he was doing, by doing all the good things. And Jesus Christ says, no, 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 not at all. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus Christ explains to Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Isn't that true? How do we know the wind is there? We feel it. We see it blowing through the trees. We have no idea where it's coming from. We have no idea where it's going. And then Christ says to Nicodemus, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it is with everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. Let me paraphrase paraphrase chapter 3, verse 8 for us this way. Out of love, Christ has come to powerfully rescue sinners by giving salvation to all those who the Holy Spirit brings to faith as he, the Holy Spirit, wishes. You can rejoice in knowing that the Holy Spirit draws you to God. That the Holy Spirit has blown through your life, through your soul, and is drawing you to Christ that you may believe. Why? Because God so loved you. Again, Warfield writes, It's not that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to love it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it. And that's the kind of love God has. Well, let me close this morning by making one last point. In regards to the prerogative of God. We all appreciate the fact that God chooses to love. We all appreciate the fact that God chooses to love us. But many people struggle with the idea that God can choose to love as he wills. We love choice, that's for sure. We love choice for ourselves, but somehow we think that we ought to limit God and that that God doesn't have the prerogative of choice. That's a human prerogative, but not a divine prerogative. That's almost blasphemous. God's prerogative, the ability and right to make choices. Again, the scriptures say that God does as he pleases. And we find comfort in that because God is good. So we can trust what he pleases. Here in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved. And that very phrase there is couched in the the idea that God chooses to love. It's evident in scriptures that God's expression of love, the type of love that he offers, the depth and the width of his love varies according to his purpose and according to his will. I'll give you a few passages. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Romans chapter 9 is probably the least read passage in the New Testament because it's so unsettling for so many people. And in chapter 9, verse 13, it reads this. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's verse 13. Go backwards to verse 11. It says, though they were not yet born. Now notice, 
I'm reading this too because a lot of people say, well, you see, the reason he hated Esau is because he knew what Esau was going to do. And so God, in his foreknowledge, hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. The truth is, between the two, if I had to choose who I would live with, I would choose Esau. Jacob was not a nice guy. He was transferred, uh, um, transformed in due time, but he was not the kind of guy. He was a mama's boy. He was not the kind of guy you would want to be with. And look at what verse 11 says. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in other words, redeemed. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then back to Romans chapter 8, verse 30 this time. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A particular divine saving love that gets the job done. His love is effective and effectual to save your soul. It will not fail. A love for a particular people and purpose which he will accomplish. Certainly God is free to express his love any way he wants. Even as you are free to express your love in any way that you please. Only because I love my wife as I do does not mean that I have to love you in the same way. And some of you are very thankful. <laughs> but it is love nonetheless. My love for you is true love. But my love for my wife is different and expressed differently. And so, my friends, it is with our loving God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 reads this way. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And let me, let me encourage you that these words are for you. That he died for you with this effectual, saving <coughs> love. My friends, praise God for the many different ways in which God expresses his love towards a world that's chained in depravity, how he expresses his love to the elect as well as the non-elect, a different sort of love, a different expression of love. Rejoice in the particular manifestation of his saving love for those who believe. Rejoice in that. A saving love for those who believe. God has chosen to display in you and to you the glory of his redeeming grace. You see, Jesus did not die so that he can love you. He died because he does love you. And that love is not only potent, it is effectual. Amen. That truth in itself should just elate your heart and bring you to a place where you just want to worship him. You want to love me? To that degree that you would sacrifice willingly for even me. God loves you. 
God cares about you. God's love for you is as an individual and as a people, his church. Now, let me close by just telling you this quick story. It's a story of a man that was riding a bus back in the 1950s. And next to him was this, was this little boy with his mother. And the little boy was sitting in the middle. And this little boy just kept fidgeting the whole ride, kept elbowing this man. This little boy kept kicking this man. And this man would just move a little further, give the little boy a little more space. And the boy would move as well and keep elbowing this man, kicking this man, just wouldn't sit still. Finally, this man's stop finally arrives. The guy gets up to get off the bus. But before he does so, he pulls out a card and gives it to this little boy. Ends up, that man was the heavyweight boxer of the time, Joe Lewis. <laughs> Big, strong man. And yet an extremely patient man. It reminds me of our God. A big, strong God, but also a patient God. And he waits on you to come to him because he loves you. Amen. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to know that you are a God of love and that you call us to yourself. Oh, Lord, may we be the sheep that hear your voice and come to you. Amen.